I want to talk about the idea of native authority as it emerged in England and why it's one of our moral impulsions. I think this is especially important now after Brexit and leaving the European Union is that we need to know, we need to have faith in our own confidence, right? And luckily, this is a very old idea, the idea of native authority. And actually partly the reason why Brexit occurred at all uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth is kind of like Virgil, which was the Roman poet who wrote the Aeneid, I think it's called, and like Homer before him, who, who you know, the, the writers of the Greek mythos uh, as, as they emerged, right? Monmouth is kind of like that in what he does with this emergent story, this emergent idea of the founding of Britain. After the defeat of Troy, as you know, the story of Greek, uh, Greeks facing uh, Achilles and Troy and Achilles' heel and all that. The Trojans get killed and destroyed, right? The idea is a descendant of the king or the royal family ends up escaping to Italy. And eventually that founds Rome. Now in Monmouth's idea, he has a son long before Rome is founded called Brutus. And he ends up being banished and wanders Europe and ends up settling in uh, England and founds a place called New Troy. And then it's sort of Troyanium, and then eventually Londonium, right? And so that's how it changes. But the point is, it's ten generations later that Rome's even founded. The idea is it's claiming an authority, because that was the cosmos of all authority back then, right? Oh, this ancient classicalism, where Aristotle came from, where Cicero came from, where all these grand and great ideas that we learn from, to claim authority is not to claim you descended from it, because then you're always hearkening back to it, right? That was kind of the genius of Virgil, is that he didn't make them of Greece. He made them of Troy. So he, he nested them in this emergent mythos that was so powerful in the Greek tradition, but put them slightly to the side of it. So they were kind of an alter imperium of their own to the Greeks. Because think about it. If you have authority, and that's the only ancient source in the pagan world anyway, that's really the only place you can go. And you're only left with one option is to say you're a side descendant of the thing that was destroyed, that was in this founding tale, like Troy, like the, like the Romans did. Because if you say you are of Rome, then you are destined to sort of be the idol of it. It's like your idol. So you can't look outside of it. Because it, by placing it aside from Rome, these, aside from the Greeks in terms of being Trojan, we're as legitimate as you are all the way back then as legitimate. So it pulls it away from the places that still exist, the states or whatever, they're, they're still Italians. It pulls it away from them, and the Greeks that are alive at the time. Pulls it away from them and places it right here in England, in the native place, and says, this is as high an authority, our home is as high an authority as the t great civilizations 2,000 years ago in Greece. Right? That's what the power the next one we can talk about is this idea of did those feats in ancient times is that in Glastonbury where the tour is right in Somerset that Jesus came there with Joseph of Arimathea and founded the cathedral there before he was Jesus you see we can't be sure how how, how old this oral tradition is I say it's probably much older based on this impulsion I'm sure all these uh, uh, self-haters is anglophobes would, you know, you see them arguing, oh, well, it's just, oh, it's not, there's no evidence that it's new, no evidence at all that it's, it's went beyond the 18th century. It's like, all right, okay, man. Well, the same impulsion did with the pagan stuff, with Geoffrey of Monmouth. So I'm going to make it, look, I hasn't a guess that it's earlier, but even so, it's the folk tradition emerges out of the oral tradition. doesn't matter. 
same thing. But this idea, right, predates Jesus being Jesus, predates his actions. It again does the same thing as the pagan ritual, right? It puts us aside from Rome again and says that we are as legitimate as you as an authority in both these matters, in the pagan matters, in the classical world, but also in the matters of Christ. Is that this is also Jerusalem in a way. And we're saying, no, we are. Our faith is in us, still with God, under God, under Christ. Our faith is in this, in us. It comes from here. He touched here and founded a church here. The highest good was here before it became the highest good. The highest power was here before it became the highest power with classical Rome. So basically that says the seed was here first, in a way. Or the seed was here at least as at least at the same time. Alter Imperium. That's what Alter Imperium really is. As it creates in England, over time, this idea of this home being its own eternal, not just as a uh, objective place, but a place in in a spirit, a place in within, right? Sort of imbued, imbued, because it's touched by Christ, because it's touched by the classic world. The seed, a new seed, though, a new seed. And that takes it out of the temporal, in a way, beyond space and time. This immortalization of the thing, right? This metarization of it into a spiritual force, the home, the place, right? Jerusalem for the Jews is like that as well. Like, it's a holy place. So is England, in a way. It's a holy place. It becomes a holy place of, of both the pagan and the Christian elements, touched by the divine. Right, and that you can see that in World War One poetry, of what the people writing it in the in the trenches. They talk of England like that. It might be W. H. Auden. I can't remember who, but like I saw England and the, I saw the grass and in the as the clouds parted for a second, uh, I saw the grass and hills of England as the clouds opened. Right, it's this divine place, uh, and and that's the case of people all over the Commonwealth, uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Same sort of thing. It's still there. It's something that's always endures. No matter what happens, this thing always survives. It's always there, just below the dark satanic mills, below the things that are over it, below the things we build. It's still there. It's still imbued in the landscape. A holy idos that exists, actually exists, constantly reinforced by the patterns of behavior can always be accessed it can always be as long as it's not completely like nuked or wiped off the map it's in here in here and there and that's all the same thing it's not just subjective objective it's a connected thing right mind spirit and earth together right uh that sounds a bit uh, i try i mean it like a structural functional organization that's what it is a mind spirit and objective material together i think that the power of that, not just because of the system and what we created, but the reason why England endured after the Commonwealth receded, right? No empire on earth, after they fell, inverted commas, has ever endured like that. What happened is, it just after it was receded, partly because of just the nature of how things were done by us, is that it still existed. The Parliament still existed. And why all the ex-places still love the place, right? It's because it's in them. It's in them. This idos is in them. And they feel it and we feel it implicitly. 
there's this connection to it that's still there. Like in Lord of the Rings, think about Hobbiton. Why did you like that when you first watched Lord of the Rings or read Lord of the Rings? Why were you attracted to that? So the smallest person can change the course of the future. Hobbiton, the Shire. It's like a tip, like, you know, it's, a, it's an emotional stuff when you see that. It was for me. It was emotional for me. You know, just this, those opening scenes of the Shire. It's no surprise that Peter Jackson, a New Zealander, it's no surprise that he's the person that made it. It's no surprise at all. Is he gets it, right? Because he's of it. He has it in his heart. Um, obviously, people outside can still like Lord of the Rings, but there's a deep connection that, to people that are connected to the English-speaking culture. Good tilled earth. Simple folk. You know? Simple English folk. It represents it, that idos. And the film does it brilliantly, right? But we look at it as this thing that's separate from us, that's not real. Well, isn't it? Isn't it real? We are real in the world. Depends what your ontology is, your epistemology, but it's real. States, you could call them, nations, you could call them, the enduring relationships of those places that you see, the pilgrimage that people still make to England, that's not a surprise either. And that's where we come to this idea of Heart of Oak, nature's great survivor, right? There's a reason why like the, sim the symbol of the oak tree really represents this as a sort of beating heart. What's a heart, right? What's a heart? The heart is the thing that gives you your power, right? It's the thing that gives you your lifeblood. And that's why it represents also native authority. It endures, it's a native tree, and it's ancient, you see. It was here long before anyone was. It existed before the Romans. It existed before Christ came. Our power was projected by the oak tree, in a way, because the ships were made of oak, right? There were letters written to the king saying, I am very worried as an oak tree uh, shipbuilder that we're going to run out of oak trees and we must regrow them or they can't, we'll, we won't be able to use this on the ships, right? It means the heart of native authority. This thing that endures, and within our culture, you see this behavior, this behavior pattern. It, what we have is good enough for us, right? What we have is good enough for us, and you can see that reflected in the idea of like native authority. What we have, our aesthetic taste is good enough for us. We don't need to look abroad for it. I mean, like Richard Haben, for instance, on, on Top Gear, when he'd go and he wouldn't eat any of the local food. And I know so many people like this. There's an Australian friend of mine, um, he would go overseas to all these places and he would bring Vegemite with him, he'd bring chips and bread with him, and he'd eat that. He just would not eat anything else, right? People go, oh, well, these people are Luddites, these people are, you know, uncultured. Well, maybe you're a dilettante, and maybe they are actually the height of culture because they're more connected to their impulsions, right? The impulsion that, no, what our aesthetic taste is good enough for us. Cosmopolitan dilettantism, right? Dilettantism as in, oh, you think, you're really, you're just casually in the pool of other cultures. Oh, this Afghani food is so lovely. Like, well, that's all you know of that culture, right? There's a lot more under the surface than just the food, man. So when you look down on people that were in class who just like their fish and chips, right? And their pint at the pub, that's good enough for them. They're more cultured than you are because you don't understand your own culture. You don't understand them or yourself. Is that you think you're enlightened because you tried Afghani food or you tried Pakistani food or wear it, you know, or wear the garb or something. Oh. The northerner understands himself more than you understand yourself and where you came from, right? He has a stronger, a working class guy has a stronger implicit connection to uh, his culture than you do. That cosmopolitanism 
it's kind of a narcissism. In a way, you could almost say that, like, <laughs> cosmopolitanism is implicit treason. <laughs> the idea of the food being shit in England, right, or it was anyway, that's connected. You make your own judgment. We don't rely on you for your judgment and your aesthetics, you see. We make a judgment of our own, not because you say it's good. Yes, we might try it and say, okay, fine, right? But the instinct is actually pure. The instinct is a good thing. This idea of saying, no, we don't need to look to you for moral guidance. We don't need to look for you. Like the Church of England, that gets, you see this impulsion in it. Like the original, the first Elizabeth, as she said, is that uh, we alone will uphold our divine sovereignty with no hand but our own, no hand external but our own. We are an alter imperium. And you can see that in the behaviours of the people. Oh, you'd have a foreigner come over and they would see in them and anything that was good in them, they say, oh, he'd be taken for an Englishman, <laughs> right? This idea. Um, but if you are, that idea's gone away. We've lost our confidence. Really? But have we, though? Or have it, has it been trained out of a certain group of people? The cosmopolitans, like upper middles in London, to think that, oh, we need to look overseas for this stuff. No, we don't. No, we don't. It's not saying don't look outside or everything outside's crap. No, it's about trusting, having faith. We don't turn them into idolatry and say that's all there is. We say we can make it better. We have the authority to make it better. Authority of our own to make classicism better, philosophy better, whatever it is. And so you might say, oh, well, this idea of authority came from those original, these guys that made up the story. Wrong. No. It's the constraints. It came out of the place itself. Is that everyone had this growing feeling of our own moral order here. Is that you're gone. We're across the sea. That And then the heart of oak starts to develop based on the constraints. It's adaptation to constraints. And this feeling, this unity, it predates any proposition, any invention of anyone. It's in the unconscious long before that. When you look at Europe and you look at the continent, that's always been a kind of dif different cosmos, right? Napoleon, Hitler, and all these people, they have Roman symbology in what they're doing, right? They're casting themselves back to say, oh, we are the new creation of Rome. Like, we never did that. Like, we are ultimate. We didn't want to or need to. The Holy Roman Empire, that is their thing, right? Like, there's, you know, Britannia, the national personification. There's a German one called Germania. And you can see in her founding the way they write the myth. This is this idea is that we are Rome. Like, we are Greece, not from Troy, like, like, not for, like our mythos, emerged from out the Azure Britannia emerges, right? Something new. Germania is the rebirth of Alexander. Germania is the rebirth of Cicero, is rebirth of Julius Caesar. That's their mythos. It's the hearkening back, not the creation of something new. And that's where I'd even say the cosmological rift there is that's where you get English Western civilization and continental Western civilization. They're two different things. Because of this mythos, right? Because of these founding heroes that are our own. You look back to Roman days that this was off the edge of their cosmos. They were afraid to even step out and take boats over there. The soldiers, when Julius Caesar first went over, like, it was very hard to get them to go over it because that was the danger place. The, the Dark Sea was the danger place, right? The Mediterranean, people came from the Mediterranean to, into your ports, right? But not there, though. No one came from there here. They might have come across along the coast, right, to northern France or Normandy, but they didn't come across that sea. That was off the edge of the known cosmos, the known universe.
as war, the dragon was always at the gates, so they had to become dragons themselves, right? Cross their own borders, constantly invade each other, right? England kind of, it had its own thing. Not a schism, but something, a thing that you can separate it by. It does seem the same now, though, right? I get it. That's in a post-World War II world. Our governing systems flooded the place, like writing of German constitution, right? Even in the Protestant, you shouldn't call England Protestant, like I've talked about before. And you can trace that to this native authority. Protestantism is a splitting of endless different, different uh, denominations. Not in, so in England. England is a Catholic of its own. It's an Anglo-Catholic Catholic, Catholicism, right? It has its own hierarchy. It kept the sacrament. It kept the rituals, right? But it has its own mythos. Jerusalem, Jesus came here, right? But across the whole place, the Church of England. It's not the Church in England, it's the Church of England. It's like, of course Brexit was inevitable. It's a goddamn, it's a moral impulsion. It, it's deep down. You're never going to stop that. Or else, and you would have ended up with huge unrest if you tried to reverse that, or you cheated in some way. You were never going to all the crappy reasons they came up with for why it's happened and why people were acting that way, why they voted, because they were tricked. No, you tricked them before. They weren't tricked by the people on the, on the uh, 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 yes side. We don't need it external. We don't need the external force. Yet there is a kind of idolatry in terms of authority on the continent, in a way. In a way. Or there is now, anyway. It has to come from external. This, this want of the European Union forces or there was that's the catholic thing that's the rome thing that your spiritual leader has to be external no we've got our own pope the king the queen and really if you had left it right it would have killed all innovation here if you left if brexit didn't occur because we need to have that idolatry transcended we can't have authority externally because it's everything in us that ha the heart of oak, the native authority it drives the invention it drives the confidence it drives the the will to succeed the will to do well, the will to invent, the will to better oneself, to create your own clubs, for individuals to go do that. If you've got this external force, it stifles all that. It stifles everything that made us great. Holy Eidos was interfered with and cut off from the authority as it exists in the needs and the moral impulsions of the people. And the growth of the nation state has done the same thing. The divine spark that we need. We don't need it externally. In fact, if you make it external, it's self-defeating. You think you're helping by, oh, great, this power together. Give us your sovereignty and we'll be able to trade, make trade deals and all that and we'll be overpowered by nations external. No, but you kill the life force of the place because the life force of the place exists upon this idea of native authority. This confidence is what allows people to be impelled by the common good be impelled by the sense of the commons to do good, to do better, to, to say, ah, this force that's here only, it's ours, it's sovereign here, that we each have a constituent piece of, has confidence in me and, and I have confidence in it, and can move forward and excel and exceed the things that came before us and lead in the world. If you take that away, you take away everyone's spirit and their connection to it. And that's what was happening. The place was dying there, and would have died. Qualities that we have here, in our native land, are good enough for me. And are equal to the task, and can be equal to the task again. That's the confidence we need back. The, the heart of oak we need back. To, right, so I'm going to read 
William Blake's Jerusalem, which is obviously the unofficial national anthem of England. And you'll see here what, how closely this is connected to everything that I've been talking about. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pastures seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among these dark satanic mills? Bring me my bow of burning gold, bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear, O clouds unfold, bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem, and England's green and pleasant land. The feet were here, the feet touched these so the soil, as an outward representation, a narrative representation of what is true, is those feet did touch the soil in ancient time. It represents the normative order that says we and our native authority, our heart of oak, comes first, right, is the highest order. We don't need that. We predated it. Normatively, we predated it, right? Not temporally, normatively, morally, and as legitimate, if not more legitimate than all of that stuff. That's the confidence that it gives you, the normative confidence, the moral confidence. That's what we need again. We need to get in touch with. This heart of oak needs to be re, re-imbued. Not re-enchanted, rediscovered. It's real. Not re-enchanted like a lie. It's real. It's there. The structural functional organization is there and it's real. So forget the idea of re-enchantment. It's rediscovery. Okay. <laughs> Calm down. And this is interesting. On England's pleasant pastures scene. Pleasant too. Like pleasant, the word seems kind of weak. But what it means is home, the half, the feeling of the warm hearth when you go into home. It means it's behind mighty walls with mighty people protecting. You only feel that pleasantness of the hearth, the warm glow that keeps the home fire burning when the mighty walls protect you, which the whole place was able to achieve on England's pleasant part, in England's hearthy pastures scene, right? There, did we see the highest good? Did we see, did it shine forth to us, this highest good? this high Jesus God highest good the high thing we most value right it shines forth from here that in language he's felt he's sensed it in the place in language connecting those two things saying yes this this force was here this this highest good was here and it beams forth from it and did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills did the face did the divine bearing divine presence divine behavior behind face shine forth upon it's a divine spirit the land itself the home itself becomes a divine spirit with the highest good with god what we value the most is in the land now too it's was jerusalem built here among these dark satanic mills these is now right the eternal now then is the founding point always to be discovered the mills aren't like the Industrial Revolution, as literalists say when they look at this point. No, wrong, dude. It's a symbol for the all-way, the satanic mill is the constructions, like the EU building, like the constructions that we make in our minds, the constructs that we turn into idols. But that's, those two things are in polarity. Endless threat and this thing that's always going to be in us and also in the, in the world. We just have to look hard enough, find it. 
to commune with it. Like, say you went to this place and it's always there's always tourists there or something. That's a problem. Find a way to to commune with with these. If you're on a pilgrimage in England, in the country, wherever the Cotswolds, find a way to commune with it when there's no one there. Turn up in an hour where there's no sneak in. Whatever you need to do at a different time it could be a special castle near a forest, whatever it is. Find a way to go there where there's no one there, where you can see it as it is, without the trappings of the modern dark satanic mills. Bring me my bow of burning gold, bring me my arrows of desire. The interesting thing about arrow is that arrows have always pointed to things. On the compass, the arrow points to north, right? Always points to true north. Why is it an arrow? Because when we were like tribal, first using bows and arrows, that's our aim, right? That's a symbol of our aim, meta-aim and physical aim. And it came out of throwing stones and shooting. That's like really important to what we are as humans, the aiming. The bow, the shooting of the bow, and going after things, right? So this this symbol of my my arrows of desire, right? The goal, aim, bring me the, the arrows of the desire, my bow of burning gold, to go do this, to go use my native authority, to use this confidence and faith, divine power that comes out of this thing that we love, this holy thing, to go and do the good, the highest good. Desire towards true north, true normative north, true moral north. Bring it to me so I know where to go. Go commune with it to see where to go. Bring me my spear, O oh clouds unfold. Bring me my chariot of fire. Bring me my masculine force, O oh clouds unfold. Right, that's, that's like masculine power. Because a spear, like the spear side of the family was an old saying. Like this is the male side of the family, right? Oh, clouds open, break, give me the divine, give me the chariot of fire. Bringing me the divine force to enact this, to enact this. Right, from the place that is here, holy, Jerusalem, England, but also up there in the imprene, up there in the there in the transcendent, outside of reason, where I can't see. In the unconscious, you might see it as the unconscious too. You can talk about it more objectively, outside of what we can comprehend in consciousness. It's just there, beyond. Everything is beyond. There's something beyond but what we can see that comes into our reason, beyond the a priori. That transcendent beyond the limits, beyond the Kantian limits. Bring me that. So it lets you know that this is a battle of the spirit. I will not cease from mental fight. Battle of inside. It's, it's a battle of the things that hold you back. It's the, 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 the you know, the, the devil is within everyone, right? It's, it's the battle is inside to go towards the highest good or to try to do the highest good. Nor shall my sword sleep in my hand. The sword is a more spiritual weapon, too, than the other weapons that are mentioned. Right? It always gleams, like the sword's edge is silver. Back then, that was fire. It was like the sun. The only thing that reflected things were water, the elements. And when we made these, the projection of my authority and power, and your authority and power, your authority and power, it won't sleep in my hand. When it's needed, it will be used to go after this thing. So till we have built Jerusalem, these are this is a Christian saying this right. Until we build Jerusalem, the kingdom is within. Like this is a symbol of endless. Like it's not it's not utopia. It's not they. It's the spirit of Jerusalem is in England, always there to be discovered. Nowhere else here, divine authority and the endless endless quest to move towards the good. The highest good is here. It's in us. The kingdom is within, but here, in our home, it's in, our home is imbued with it, this holy force, this arrow of desire. We know where to aim the arrow of desire, because true north is here. 
where the north wind blows, to move towards it, to build it, to build towards the highest good, the thing we value the most, is here, in home, in England's green and pleasant land, in England's green hearth, the holy colour of green. Think about it when you come back from overseas or whatnot, when you see that green. It's not tropical green, overripe, but to seek it out, to commune with it, to be rejuvenated, to rediscover it. So William Blake, before Jerusalem comes up, this preface is, is put in by him. I'll read it now. I really wanted to give it to you in the same order that I read it, because you, you'll, you'll see it in what he's talking about, right? The stolen and perverted writings of Homer and Ovid, of Plato and Cicero, which all men ought to contempt or condemn, are set here by artifice against the sublime of the Bible, but when the new age is at leisure to pronounce, all will be set right, and those grand works of the more ancient and consciously and professedly inspired men will hold their proper rank, and the daughters of memory shall become the daughters of inspiration. Shakespeare and Milton were both curbed by the general malady and infection from the silly Greek and Latin slaves of the sword. Rouse up, O young man of the new age. Set your foreheads against the ignorant hirelings, for we have hirelings in the camp, the court, and the university, who would, if they could, forever depress mental and prolong corporal war. Painters, on you I call, sculptors, architects, suffer not the fashionable fools to depress your powers, but the prices they pretend to give for their contemptible works, or the expensive advertising boasts that they make of such works. Believe Christ and his apostles that there is a class of men whose whole delight is in destroying. We do not want either Greek or Roman models, if we are but just and true to our own imaginations. Those worlds of eternity in which we shall live forever, in Jesus our Lord. That's native authority, right? It mentions the Bible. You might say that, oh, it's, it's talking about not pagan. No, it's talking about all the people idolizing, idolatry of the classical world and not having faith in the native authority that's here. Right, which is what Jerusalem means, is that Jesus did come here. Jesus did walk amongst the green hills, right? Forget, don't worship Ovid. Ovid and Homer, like, that's the Greek mythos. We've got our own mythos. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It's in. It's in that. He's got the right impulsion. He's connected to the impulsion. And that's what it means. We should take from this, from this Chad statement from William Blake, is we have need of grand faith in ourselves. That's not to deny the, the great things that Plato said. Fine, we transmute them for our own, though. We have a normative faith and our own ability to go forward into the future, to invent, to discover, to, to not rely on external forces, to champion our own sovereignty, and to be great again. Because we are great. Because our culture is great. We don't need to look outside of it to create future greatness, to seek Jerusalem, to go towards the highest good again. It's within. So go forward and do it. I believe you should too. And God save the king.